Golasu. Let's go directly to meditation. Please find a comfortable position. This will be a guided session, a bit of review, a bit of synthesis of what we've done in the past. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Then letting your awareness remain right where it is, resting in its own place. Direct the light of your awareness down, down to the earth element where your body is in contact with the chair, the cushion, the floor. Ground your awareness. dropping your anchor there, let your awareness fill the whole space of your body, this whole somatic field. Illuminating all manner of sensations throughout this tactile field, but taking special note of those sensations corresponding to the in and out breath. with few words now. Let's practice the first phase of mindfulness of breathing, attending to the whole body, arousing the attention with each in-breath, relaxing with each out-breath, with each exhalation especially, relax more and more deeply, letting go in all three ways, body, speech, and mind, without losing clarity, deep in relaxation, without losing the clarity with which you began. 
Let's practice for a while in silence.
Then more narrowly focus the attention on the rise and fall of the abdomen. <coughs> Giving some effort now to enhancing stability or the stillness of awareness, the continuity of focused awareness, but without seizing up, without losing the sense of ease and relaxation. Arousing with each inhalation, relaxing with each exhalation, counting the breaths insofar as you find it helpful.
then elevate and narrow the focus of your awareness to the sensations for the actual passage of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils, keeping your eyes soft and unfocused, all the muscles around the eyes soft, letting the breath flow naturally, unforced, and monitor the flow of mindfulness with introspection, balancing the mind as you know how, as soon as you see that either excitation or laxity have arisen. Here we are enhancing vividness as the sensations of the breath become subtler and subtler. We attend more and more closely, but without losing the sense of stillness, the stability of attention.
and withdraw the rope of mindfulness that fixes your attention on the meditative object. Withdraw it into yourself and let your awareness remain with no object outside itself, resting in its own nature, free of grasping. So there's really no harm in shifting from one method to another within the same session. And so that's what we did here, obviously. And I presented these three methods now all in one kind of compact version to show the kind of the natural sequence. It's good to remember the, the balances, relaxing without losing clarity, enhancing stability without losing relaxation, enhancing vividness without losing stability. Uh, it's actually very useful. The methods, I think, also have proven themselves to be very helpful. And whether for this, those of us here living in retreat for eight weeks or listening by way of podcast, uh, we can really regard these as kind of really like, like three, three gears in a car, you know, standard transmission. And that is, if you're going up quite a steep hill, or maybe it's very rugged, a lot of potholes and so forth, then you'll need to be in first gear. Otherwise, they say in, in English, the engine lugs. You go, uh, uh, uh. It's clearly not, not working. So you have to shift into first gear. You, you downshift to first gear and say, okay, now you get traction now. It's the right gear shift, and then you can, you can move up the steep hill, right? But if the se- and so what's the analogy there? It's pretty simple. Maybe you're all, all familiar with this already, but on those occasions when we're just stressed out, we're tight, there's been some emotional upheaval, some arguments, some tension, something has just wound us up, then the very notion of meditating may appear just hopeless. I can't meditate, I'm just too, I'm too wound up. I can't meditate, I'm too disturbed, I'm too upset, I can't meditate. That's when you need to meditate most. That's like a person saying, I'm so sick, I can't possibly take medicine. <laughs> I'm, I'm way too sick to go to a doctor. You know. And so that's the time when we need most, but if we don't have the semshuk, the strength of the heart or mind, to really meditate, then could, can, you, can you lie down? Can you lie down? You have enough courage to lie down flat on your back with a nice cushion under your head or a pillow under the head and go into complete meltdown and full body awareness, earth element, and just breathe out and breathe out and breathe out and breathe out. And if you take a nap, that's okay. If you don't take a nap, good, then you're meditating because you're striking that balance, right? So there's first gear. The second gear, you don't feel that wound up and tense. You just have a very agitated mind. In other words, you're feeling normal. 
in which case, bringing the attention down to the abdomen, you know, and that releasing, but bringing down, 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 that's old yogi's advice when your mind is agitated, direct your attention downwards, it grounds the attention. It's old advice from Tibet, you know, when it, it was more relaxed generally. And so there the rise and fall of the abdomen, ground, you can be sitting, you can be in supine position, of course, as you wish. Now you're really giving a gentle effort to sustaining continuity, attending to the whole body of the breath, the in-breath, the out-breath, the whole course, trying to make, getting, getting into the kind of the flow, enhancing stability, but not giving so much effort that you start to seize up. Right? So that's second gear. And other occasions you might feel really relatively balanced. The mind is working quite well. Don't feel stressed, don't feel particularly agitated, just normal agitation. In which case, focusing then, elevating, which is then good for overcoming laxity. And that's another point. On those occasions when your mind is a bit dull, lacking in clarity and so forth, then the old yogi's advice is elevate and narrow the focus of attention. Elevate, well, why not to the apertures of the nostrils? It's small and it's subtle. So all of that, the fact that it's up, that it's small and it's subtle, all of that's going to help in enhancing the vividness of attention. But of course, don't focus so tightly you start getting raffled agitated, stressed out uh, because of that. So, and then the final point, <clears throat> just go back and rest your awareness in awareness, which is where it all starts. So, brief review, and all of this, of course, is to make the mind serviceable. We're about to go momentarily here into the text, discussion of Vajrayana <clears throat> in general and the practice of Chenrezi, or Avalokiteshvara in particular, in which visualization, of course, is playing a very, very strong role. It just generally does for Vajrayana. And the quieter your mind is, the more relaxed the mind is, the more calm the mind is, the clearer the mind is, the easier it is going to be to be able to visualize. It's just noise. And that is, if you're in, a, in an auditorium where everybody's, just everybody, like 5,000 people, are all chatting, talking, rustling their brochures, their schedules, and so forth and so on, and somebody starts playing like a flute or a, or a you know, acoustic guitar, you won't hear them. You'll hardly even hear it through all the chatter, the murmuring, the coughing, and so forth. And, and you know, for a musician, the musician, oh, you want to listen to me? Great. He just leaves. You know, I'm not going to waste my time here. But when the mind is quiet, then, of course, the same sound then is much clearer. An indicator of this, I think you've probably all experienced this, when you're, when you're trying to visualize during the daytime, and might find it very difficult, blurry, vague, unstable, kind of unsatisfying, frankly. But when you're falling asleep, when you're getting really, when you're kind of really, really drifting off, and the mind is quieter now, and you're kind of, your senses are just naturally withdrawing from your environment, and so forth, that whole phase of hypnagogic imagery can be so clear, right? It's coming up spontaneously, right? Well, that's visualization. It's involuntary visualization. But see how clear it is. And that, frankly, my interpretation is, that's because there's less competition. You're not caught up in all the thinking and remembering and hoping and fearing and so forth. You're almost asleep. So you get a bit of hypnagogic image, and then you pass out. So, try to... Get that clarity without passing out could be a really good idea. Mindfulness of breathing then can be a very helpful prelude to the stage of generation practice, to Vajrayana, to the Avalokiteshvara sadhana. So let's now go to the text, the long-awaited text. We finished one week of attending to the preliminary practices. 
the three and the three and mindfulness of breathing, which all of that is a preliminary practice. So here we are in the text, Spacious Path to Freedom, it's page 39. You can simply read at your leisure the uh, kind of the background uh, in, the, in the preceding chapter, and knowing full well, as I've said before, before this comes something like 200 pages of teachings on the preliminary practice, for preliminary practices. But now we turn in this text, uh, the stage regeneration. Of course, the text, the name of the book is called The Space to Fra- Spacious Path to Freedom. Uh, I just made up that title. That's not Kamachavanamish's title, that's my title. Because I have to give a new title, because it's only part of a book and it's Gatranamish's commentary. So I can't simply say, you know, I just can't simply take Kamachamed's title, because it's not even the whole book and it has a commentary. So that's it. But these are practical instructions on the union of Mahamudra and Ati Yoga. Actually, that should be Mahasandhi or Dzogchen, uh, the two. And so it's called the Tuji Chempe Sung, Chanjo Sung the teachings of the great compassionate one, who is referring to Avalokiteshvara, on the union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So now we go. Let's look at the text. Chapter 2. The stage of regeneration. And what is remarkable here, and I don't know if it's unique, but I find it somewhat, uh, somewhat unusual, is he's going right to this practice preceding shamatha. And we'll kind of look into why that's the case. But it's unusual. In the classic lamrims, Sonkaba's lamrim, Gampoba's lamrim, and so on, uh, you have the shamatha, vipassana, you know, the teachings and renunciation, bodhicitta, all of that before Vajrayana. But here he's putting shamat, the Vajrayana practice, stage generation only, just before shamat. It's quite interesting, and I think very intriguing. Okay, now let's just jump in. So, homage to Avalokiteshvara. So here's the mood, the ambience, the context for all of the teachings, the embodiment of compassion. And it's quite nice, and it is from my own, just my own personal perspective. Uh, my root guru is His Holiness Dalai Lama was widely regarded by his devoted followers as an emanation of Avalokiteshvara. This is by Kamachamaramache, so Kamachame, you know, uh, obviously the Kagyu tradition, and the, the premier lama in the, in the Kagyu tradition is Gyawakamapa, Gyawakamapa, going back many, many generations, now the 17th incarnation, right? And Gyawakamapa, by his devoted disciples, is widely regarded as an emanation of Avalokiteshvara. So, and moreover, Kamachamiramachi himself was something of a tutor to the fifth Dalai Lama. So, all part of the family. Quite nice. Okay. So, these are the profound, the profound instructions of Avalokiteshvara on the cultivation of the stage regeneration, which is a means of swiftly attaining enlightenment. This is a unique characteristic of the secret mantrayana. They just call it Nak in Tibetan, mantra, but it's it's kind of an abbreviation of karsa, nakitekpa, or, yeah, nakitekpa, mantrayana. So that's why it's written the way it is here. So this is unique or uncommon characteristic of the secret sangha, sangha, mantrayana. And as such, it surpasses the sutra tradition. So he's just saying, generally speaking, vajrayana surpasses sutrayana, or mantrayana surpasses sutrayana. And then he gives some size, some sources for this. And as, as you see through the text, um, his text is largely comprised of, it's like a bouquet. It's a bouquet. It's, he's taking just sources here and here and here from his vast erudition. And then it's, he's like really like, like creating a bouquet, like he's an artist. 
and just taking a flower from here, flower from there, and then arranging them in a sequence and adding his commentary, but writing rather sotto voce, sotto voce, a little bit quiet. Is that correct? Sotto voce, yeah. Um, kind of quiet commentary. So it's not like, here's my commentary, but here's, rather, here's my bouquet and here's all the people I'm citing. From the Buddha himself, the great Mahasiddhas, from India, Tibet, and so forth. And he's simply a flower arranger, drawing from, of course, he's a great adept and a great scholar. So this is what he's doing right from the beginning here. So he's citing this, a, a lamp on the three avenues. States, for those with no confusion regarding even a single point, having no difficulty in a multitude of techniques, and for those of sharp faculties, the Madriana Superior. Okay. And I'm not going to read Gautamacca's commentary. I think it's perfectly clear. I invite you to read it at your leisure. So, of course, the, um, the smaller, smaller font is Gautamacca's oral commentary. And I was his interpreter for these teachings in the early 1990s in San Francisco. So he's highlighting here, though, that is, one needs to have some special qualities to be a suitable vessel for or an appropriate disciple for the practice of Mantrayana. And for those people who are suitable for it, then this is, they should really go to, to Vajrayana or Mantrayana and not simply stay in Sutrayana because they get greater benefit, greater profundity, greater efficacy in their practice if they go on to the Vajrayana. The great Tantra of Samputta states, in short, the Buddhahood that is attained after countless billions of eons. Whew, I mean, we think modern cosmology is big. I mean, this is a lot bigger. Yeah. Uh, that is attained after countless billions of eons may joyfully be achieved by this sacred means in this very lifetime. That really kind of catches the attention. So, very, these very strong statements, I mean, really. So you will attain the state of Vajradhara, the primordial Buddha, Vajradhara, Samadabhadra, Adi Buddha. These are all referring to primordial Buddha. In other words, did not achieve enlightenment at some point in the, in the past, but therefore is simply the embodiment of primordial consciousness. So not a human being that lived and had a mom and dad and so forth, but simply, an, and we have it right here. Here's, here's Vajradhara, Samadabhadra, Adi Buddha, right there. Doesn't have any mother or father, right? Primordial archetype. So you will attain the state of Vajradhara or that of a world emperor by way of Vajrayana, Vajradhara, or of a world emperor, Chakravartan, or the eight great cities, or whatever you desire. Okay? Phew. The Tantra of the Orb, or the Bindu of primordial wisdom, back, back when I was translating this more than 20 years ago, I was translating Yeshe as primordial wisdom. For the last 10, 15 years, I've translated it as primordial consciousness. Clearly, neither one's wrong. Most people still translate it as primordial wisdom. So the Tantra of the Orb, or the Bindu of Primordial Wisdom, states, or it may even be accomplished effortlessly as soon as this body is abandoned. In other words, by practicing Vajrayana, and you slip into the clear light of death, you may just effortlessly achieve enlightenment there. It's called achieving enlightenment by way of the Dharmakaya, in the clear light of death. That may be your avenue right off to enlightenment there. The primary Tantra, or the root Tantra of Kala Chakra, states, those who have come to be executioners and so on, you know, like genocide, mass murderers, people who are just spending their lives killing, so heavy, heavy negative deeds. And those who have committed the five deeds of immediate retribution, these are the five heaviest, killing mother, father, killing an arhat, creating a schism in the Sangha, and intentionally and malevolently drawing blood of, an, of a fully enlightened being, 
those are the five. If you don't purify them, then you don't even have a bardo. You go from here and you die and just go right down to Avicii. So, those, but, so this is the most heinous, or sometimes called the five heinous crimes. So whether you've lived your life as a, as a murderer, or you've committed these five deeds, maybe all five, even such people may become awakened in this very lifetime by following the conduct or the practice of Madhuryana. So he begins emphasizing the extraordinary, almost inconceivable purificatory power, transformative and liberative power, liberating power of the Madhuryana. So that's kind of come as a relief. That's good. The Guya Samaja Tantra, he's really just going from one classic to another. The Kala Chakra, Guya Samaja, the most profound uh, you know, tantras within this highest yoga tantra cycle. Even sentient beings who have committed such great sins as the five deeds of immediate retribution may become accomplished by means of the ocean of Adriana, the supreme vehicle. So, same message. The tantra of the equal union with all the Buddha states, with the, with the technique of the secret mantrayana, you will become accomplished in this very lifetime. Milarepa was very adamant about this, because when he achieved such enlightenment in one lifetime, uh, then those seeing what he had accomplished in this lifetime, given the baggage he brought to it, I mean, he was a person who killed, murdered many people, 35. So he brought in enormous baggage, found the sublime teacher, Marpa, purified everything, and still achieved enlightenment. So then uh, one of the, probably the most beloved yogi in the whole history of Tibet ever since. Uh, upon, after he had achieved his tremendous realization, his enlightenment, then I think the word got out. Some people started saying, oh yeah, but he must, be a, he must have come in you know, already a highly enlightened being. He was just finishing off. And I don't remember the exact quote, but Milarepa was quite strong in his response. He said, no, no, now you're completely missing the whole point of the practices that I was guided in by my Guru Marpa. This was not because I was some incredibly gifted individual. I came in with tremendous momentum. I was one of those child prodigies. Child prodigies don't kill 35 people out of malice. You know, they would kind of find another way of dealing with the problem. He said, no, you're missing the whole point. This is not because I was a great tuku or something like that. No, this is the power of the teachings that even if you are a great sinner, and he was, frankly, it's the power of the teaching, the power of Vajrayana, that really brings about this great result. So don't think it was because, oh no, I was some special being when I was born. No. So, very strong on that point. Emphasizing, okay, this is the power of this, of this Vajrayana. Okay. Hmm. The, yeah, the tip of the Vajra. I think it's also called the peak of the Dorji the, uh, the It's often translated as peak of the Vajra Tantra. Uh, in this and all other lifetimes, the bearer of the Vajra will strive diligently, and upon the completion of 16 lifetimes, the serenity of awakening will be attained. So compared to billions of eons, 16 lifetimes is, you know, a few flicks of the lamb's tail, short time. And from the same Tantra, ordinary beings will achieve awakening, but not otherwise. In other words... This is the practical way. Jnana Sakara, Acharya Jnana Sakara states, as an analogy, one who has accomplished swift-footedness, it's called Lungom in Tibetan, Lungom. It's a, it's a mundane city. And I don't know that anybody's practicing it nowadays, but within memory, I've spoken with people, went way back, like, you know, I'm an old geezer now, like 40, 40 years ago in Dharamsala, I spoke with people who knew of people. 
it was that another that close. We're not going back 500 years, but you know, like early 20th century, like that. It was a practice that was done. It's a tsalung practice. It's a practice where you're transmuting your energies, and you really go into something like a trance, a very deep meditative state, and you you have this swift footedness. I mean, you can cover enormous distances, and you are running, but it's not ordinary running. I think. If we had people like that, they'd have to have a special class of Olympics for them, because <laughs> it just wouldn't be fair. You know, everybody would be like everybody else would be physically challenged. You know, like that wonderful guy from what do you know, the black dude. He's so fast, so cool. You know, he, he would be out outraced by these guys, especially long distance. You know, so he's giving this as an analogy. I wish people would achieve that now. It'd be fun to watch, but I'm not going to do it. So, but people have achieved this lungom. As an analogy, one whose accomplished swift-footedness may in days or a month reach a destination that would take a weak person or a bullock-drawn wagon a long time to reach. So there's this analogy. Likewise, that which is reached after a long period in reliance upon the path of perfections, the Sufriyana or the Paramitayana, or other paths, Shravakayana, Patatyaka, Buddha paths, is reached in this lifetime by means of the Matriyana. This is due to reliance upon the power of equality. We'll get that, the power of equality. So we'll get to that later. A little bit more. Acharya Nagarjuna says, You have no thieves in your empty house, and though you lack flesh, bone, and blood, like a rainbow in the sky, you reveal your body. So one could say that one could interpret that as like a rainbow body, interpret that as really achieving enlightenment, where you transcend your very physicality. Let's read just a little bit more. The Vajra Pavilion's Hantra states, one who meditates on my body, this is the Buddha speaking, either as an illusory body or as being like a dream, will see me directly as a result of earnest meditation. So there it is, as an adjunct to this. This whole cultivation of pure vision, which I've, ent- I've spoken of now a, couple of, a number of times, some length in the uncommon preliminaries, Pure vision towards yourself, pure vision towards the Guru, pure vision towards your Vajra siblings. This is not only good for inner transformation, for purifying your vision of reality around you, but as the mind becomes pure, then this can result also in pure visions while in your dreams, so you may receive authentic teachings from the Buddha in the dreams, or as in the case of one of my teachers, Kandola, the Ranjo Nanjoma, the self-emergent yogini who lives in Dharmasala, incredible being. I met her only a few times, received teachings only once, and that was enough. I asked her to be my lama. Uh, but such purity, such extraordinary purity. I mean, I have kind of coarse mind, kind of a crude mind, but even I picked it up. It's just like, whoa, just being with her and hearing her just in one hour. This was seven, eight, seven years ago, something like that, just sitting within a room with a few friends. And just seeing the wisdom that flowed forth spontaneously, it just, it was stunning. It was just like, astonishing, really. The purity of the presence, the purity of the voice, the purity, the depth, the spontaneous wisdom of the teaching was simply extraordinary. Never seen anything like it. And so when she first, and she has tremendous faith, incredible faith, especially in His Holiness, above all His Holiness. And... uh, when she first saw him, I've told this story many times, very short story, but when she first saw him, 
she had just come down, she'd recently come down from Tibet. Peasant girl, peasant girl, just really ordinary, except she was not extraordinary at all. But she was really longing to be able to gaze upon just His Holiness, to be able to see Him. And her first opportunity was when he was simply driving by, when he was on his way probably for some traveling. And they would let, they would let the villagers in McLeod Ganj know when His Holiness, so if they'd like to offer kata, simply be able to have darshan, be able to see him as he passes by in the motor cavalcade. People have that opportunity, right? So the word got out, okay, at 2 o'clock His Holiness passed by, he's heading for the airport, if he wanted to just greet him on his way out. So she's there. And she's gazing at him with tremendous faith. And he's inside the car, man. She sees him inside the car. And she sees him as thousand arms, generally, radiating light in all directions. Okay. So, pure vision. It not only transforms your perception of yourself, but you actually see differently things that other people simply will not see. Because of, you know, mind's still clouded. The glorious Pamodubha, great Kagyupa master, says, meditate on the body of the deity as being like a rainbow. Get rid of your ordinary notion. So there he's speaking of pure vision as being like a rainbow, insubstantial, intangible, pure display of primordial consciousness. And that's the vision, and get rid of your ordinary notion, and this is the ordinary grasping, the conceptualization, the conceptual imputation. Release both. A little bit more. The Tantra of the Lotus King states, Suffering stops simply by hearing of the characteristics of the body of the protector Avalokiteshvara, and one is led to bliss with mindfulness and veneration. So that brings us to, he's now narrowing in. Here's my bookmark. Uh, he's narrowing in, he's covered, he's put context. So he'll do this repeatedly. He'll kind of start broad and then focus in, 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 and now he's coming. Coming broadly speaking from Madrayana or Mantrayana, secret Mantrayana, to a specific practice, state of generation, including self-generation, generating yourself as Avalokiteshvara. So he's going from the general to the specific. And we'll pick up on the specific tomorrow. But now a few comments on the Vajrayana. Generally speaking, we have these two broad categories of the, the occult event, Yu Tekpa and Devu Tekpa. Causal vehicle, fruitional vehicle. Causal and fruitional. They both make very good sense. One is very rational and empirical, the other one is profoundly intuitive. So then having made earlier comments about that, I mean, we have a context for that, right? And so the causal vehicle, the Shravakayana, the teachings in the Pali Canon, the Theravada, Vaibhashika, Satrantika, uh, for that matter, Yogacara and Madhyamaka, the causal vehicle, the Paramitayana, the Bodhisattvayana, all of these causal vehicles. Why called causal? Because of the platform from, platform from which you are practicing. Where are you dropping your anger? Where is your sense of identity? Who do you think you are? That's, it's really, that's the question. Who do you think you are? And the rational and empirical answer to that question is, if you're me anyway, and anybody who's like me, who do you think you are? I think I'm a human being, I think I'm a sentient being, and I not only think I know, I mean I know this, and I also know that my mind suffers, my body suffers, I know that I have mental afflictions, I can see causal connection between my delusion, craving and hostility, and my suffering. I have a sense of karma, my actions have consequences, and so, boy, I'm a sentient being, that is, I'm in samsara, and that's who I am, 
and I'd like not to be here because there's an awful lot of suffering and perpetuation of suffering. And so tell me the causes that I can implement to get me out of my present predicament. That's it. Give me the vehicle. I'm here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to have Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, of just being in the same syndrome endlessly, endlessly. But there was something really good about Groundhog Day that's not good about samsara. It's a really important point in that classic and really quite cool movie. But the really cool thing about Bill Murray in that movie was from day to day to day, he actually got to learn from his mistakes the yesterday. So he was progressing and progressing. He was then a virtue of a master of piano, remember, and he got good at this and good at that. And he remembered his mistakes as trying to get the girl, you know, don't do it, not this way, not this way, getting clever and clever, and then finally, you know, had a nice ending. But he was able to learn from this Groundhog Day. If we could only, when we're born, remember all the mistakes we made in the past lifetimes and all the things we learned right, say, well, that was an 80-year-old life, and okay, why? But now I'm not going to do that again. You know, these wise old children, two years old, you know, I'm not going to do that again, no, sorry. <laughs> then we can really see we'd have a real good chance of achieving enlightenment, maybe even on our own. Who knows, if we could learn from all our mistakes, then even without somebody coming in from outside, say, well, I can remember the last 13 billion of my lifetimes, and that was a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to make any of those mistakes anymore. By process of elimination, you might really get to enlightenment. Just not, not this, not this, not what's left over. Okay, rest in awareness, achieve enlightenment. But that's the real drag of samsara. I mean, it's chronic, chronic amnesia. That's the real bummer. That's really, to my mind, it's the, the most awful part of it. Is that we make all these mistakes, horrendous, stupid mistakes. As Shandadeva says, as we seek to be free of suffering, we hasten out the causes of suffering. We seek to find happiness, we destroy the causes of our own happiness as if they were our enemies. But we don't learn, because a little kid doesn't, I mean, most little kids don't remember their past lives. And those who do, like those studied by, you know, the late Ian Stevenson, nowadays Jim Tucker and others, these intrepid scientists at the University of Virginia, you know, they forget by the time they're seven, eight years old. So even they remember when they're young. Then they're seven, eight, then they've forgotten. So that's really the tragic part. You know, it's like, like dream cycles. When you have your first dream, you don't remember where you were or who you were when you, when you were awake. And that's only maybe two hours ago. <laughs> and you have this little short lifespan. You think, this is it. You know, you take out your life insurance in that first dream. Think, I'm going to be here. And then five minutes later, you're, done, you're finished. You go unconscious. You go blotto. You slip into the substrate. Ninety minutes later, you're having a second dream. You can't remember the first dream, let alone what it was like to be awake. You wander around thinking, this is it, this is it, and then you're out. And you do that five to seven times a night. And how many times do you remember in one dream, the last dream? And when you finally wake up, do you, how many of those dreams do you remember? Maybe one, a lot of people, none. You know? so that's, and that's just a little microcosm of samsara. So that's the really bad part is that we don't tend to learn from our mistakes. Even in one lifetime, we often don't learn from mistakes, but let alone from lifetime to lifetime. So the causal vehicle says, well, here's ocean of suffering. We get all these powerful metaphors. We had it in the common preliminaries, the final point, suffering, nature of karma. And so we're saying, this is where I live. This is where I am. This is who I am. Please give me the causes that can help me achieve a fruition that I've never realized. It's in the future 
what can I do? Here's the question. What can I do? What causes can I implement that will give rise to the fruition of freedom, and freedom at least as an arhat, optimally awakening of a Buddha? What can I do? And as you're practicing from session to session, lifetime to lifetime, as we'll see for three, seven, or maybe it was even 11, it comes a little bit later in the text, countless eons, you know, who's counting up to the first three? But you know, as we're doing that, the platform is always, I'm a sentient being and one day I hope to become Buddha. We're dropping our anchor in our sentient beingness, which is very rational, very empirical, right? It makes sense, it really makes sense, but it's a long haul. A really long haul. Not incredibly long if you want to become, just get out yourself and leave everybody else behind. But if you're really going for a full enlightenment, then by all accounts, it's really an incredibly long haul. So there it is. And that's not even counting living in an incredibly degenerate era where the whole flow of the world around us is going in the opposite direction from enlightenment, frankly. I don't want to be cynical here, but it's kind of obvious. So it's difficult. It's all the more difficult. Right? And then we have the resultant vehicle, called the resultant vehicle, the, the fruitional vehicle. This defines Vajrayana. It includes Mahamudra, it includes Adzokchen. It includes the stage of regeneration, completion, the, the outer tantras, the, inter, the, inner, tantra, the inner tantras, uh, all of them. And there we're doing something. The shift here is that which separates whether it's going to take countless eons or a matter of maybe 16 lifetimes at most, maybe even less, maybe even this lifetime. So there's got to be an enormous difference. I mean, there's just orders, so many orders of magnitude different between following the causal vehicle, which is very sensible, and following the, the resultant vehicle or fruitional vehicle, which you can get not with just empiric, show me the evidence, Show me the reasoning. You can't get it. You can't get it that way. You have to be drawing on another type of, of knowing, and it is intuition. Manifesting as faith, trust, belief, but fundamentally intuition. So intuition in what? Well, by the power of intelligence. I would say this with a lot of confidence. By the power of intelligence and using our intelligence to the maximum, pushing it as hard as we possibly can, we may encounter, engage with the teachings on the perfection of wisdom, the Madhyamaka, the middle way of you, and by the power of intelligence. It has to have virtue behind it as well, but the cutting edge really is intelligence. You can break through and really come to know emptiness, the ultimate reality of emptiness of inherent nature of all phenomena. That's by the power of intelligence. As I said before, uh, it makes sense. It's very challenging, but it really does make sense. So that'll take you on that paramitayana, including six perfections, culminating in perfection of wisdom. This resultant vehicle. It's very often said that this is the power of this comes from the power of faith or belief. I actually use the word belief, yichi, which is belief. If you don't have the reference, the devotion, the faith, the belief, Vajrayana will not work for you. If you're saying, show me the facts, show me the reasoning, prove it, prove it, prove it, where's the evidence? Then Back to the causal vehicle, that's fine. That, that's empirical, that's rational, you can do that. But if you're just looking for evidence and rationality, and that's going to be, and you say, not, never mind faith, never mind belief, no, not for me, I just have to have evidence and, and ration, rational reasoning, the Vajrayana just doesn't make any sense at all. So we either open 
our way of engaging with reality to this more intuitive level, which of course is open to error. There's no question, is it intuition or is it hope? Just hope or wishful thinking or speculation or an idle hunch or whatever. So again, we've I've looked into, discussed that a little bit and how we try to shell, that is, take off the outer obscurations, that which veils intuition, authentic intuition, so that it doesn't get muddled up with belief and expectation and all that junk and clear it away so from this deeper source. The intuition can flow forth. So there's just no question that in the fruition, the resultant vehicle, what are we doing? We're taking, we're dropping our anchor instead of dropping the anchor in I am a sentient being, and that's the, end of the, that's the end of the discussion. I'm not anything other than a sentient being. I am a sentient being. I'm not even 1% Buddha, 100% sentient being. But in the future, I want to become Buddha, right? So we're kind of locking in there. And now Vajrayana gives us a choice that is an extraordinary choice. And that is to say, that's not the only option. Yes, it's rational. Yes, it's empirical. But it's not your only option. There's a choice. And the other choice is to drop your anchor in the fruition, in Buddhahood itself, and operate out of that perspective. And I said before that Vajrayana really just makes no sense at all, and I elaborate on it so I don't need to now, without realization of emptiness, without that stop, go back to the Sutrayana, there's got to be a realization of emptiness. Got to be. Okay, but I've said that before, and I don't need to elaborate. With realization of emptiness, we can ask, how is it legitimate to be practicing Dharma from the perspective, the vantage point, the sense of identity of being a Buddha, when it's perfectly obvious you're not? How is it not just counterfactual, make-believe? How is that... You know, tell me. Because again, these are not foolish people. These are not dumb people. The adepts of Vajrayana over the last, what, 1500 years or longer, you look at them, Nagarjuna, Tsongaba, Padmasambhava. I mean, these are Sakya Pandita. I mean, these are brilliant people. Brilliant people. Staggering, it's so, I mean, staggeringly brilliant. So there's just no way this is dumb. It may be a mistake. That's a possibility. But dumb, not a, not a possibility. Not by such people. And it's only the Dalai Lama. I mean, utterly committed to Vajrayana practice, himself and in his teachings. So how can this be intelligent? If and only if there's this deep intuitive affirmation of Buddha nature, Dharmakaya, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Okay? And the other one is the power of insight, driven by intelligence, of emptiness. But nevertheless, we say, yeah, but that's fine, that's all very well, but the fruition is far in the future whether it's 16 lifetimes, whether it's one lifetime, or whether it's three countless eons, it's still in the future, and I'm not in the future, so how does that make any sense? And then it comes in, here's an answer, here's an answer to try to make it intelligible. Nagarjuna in his Mula, Mula Madhyamakarika, his root text on wisdom, fundamental text on wisdom, as he analyzes every class of phenomena, he's, in, he's analyzing time as well. And every single time, he's pointing out 
whatever, whatever you point your finger to, any object, any phenomenon whatsoever, including space, time, matter, consciousness, and so forth, empty of inherent nature. In other words, time is not absolute. It doesn't flow. It's not absolutely out there. It's not something that just happens to us objectively. It has, in fact, no inherent existence, no objective existence, no existence in and of, of itself at all, independent of conceptual designation. Einstein himself says, time is an illusion, but a very persistent one. <laughs> but he himself, time is one of the most elusive things in modern physics. It's still elusive. They haven't nailed it. It's mysterious. It's persistent. And yet, Einstein himself, who made such enormous breakthroughs in, in seeing the relativity of space and time, says it's an illusion. It's an illusion. I won't elaborate now, but the area of quantum cosmology that I bring about in a number of my books, A Mind in the Balance, Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, things coming out about the nature of time, frozen time, the role of the observer participant, are absolutely staggering. I mean, it's immensely deep, coming from an entirely secular perspective. I won't elaborate. Coming right back to Madhyamaka, though, time, the past, the present, the future, they're not in, the past is not inherently the past, the present is not inherently, by its own nature, the present, and the future, likewise, not inherently out there in the distant future. All relative to conceptual framework, relative to conceptual designation. And now, so there we is, just already suddenly, oh, what are the implications of that? You know, like, oh, that's a different world. It's not a Newtonian world. The Newtonian world is a fiction. Brilliant man, brilliant physics, but absolute space, time, matter, and energy. Whoops, you know that has gone. That doesn't has never was never true. So let's hold that thought. Okay, time is an illusion. Time is relative to conceptual designation. Has no inherent existence of its own. Now let's bring in the other element that I said is indispensable. It's not my opinion. It's just true. In Vajrayana, there must be that affirmation, that intuitive affirmation, Dharmakaya. Buddha nature, omnipresent, mind of the Buddha, everywhere present, everywhere spontaneously active, spontaneously manifesting for the sake of sentient beings. We also call it Rikpa, pristine awareness. And Rikpa is said to be, oh, Dujibhalineba abides in the fourth time. Pristine awareness is not abiding, is not confined to this vanishingly narrow sliver of time of the present moment, with the past falling off here and the future falling off there, like a tightrope. That's not where pristine awareness is located. They do talk, call it they do call it awareness of the present moment, but not that way. Not in an absolute present that is narrowly confined, vanishingly short, between the past that no longer exists, the future that doesn't exist. No, the rikpa abides in the fourth time. And the fourth time transcends and permeates, transcends and pervades all three times. The Buddha's perspective on time is out of time. The Buddha can see past, present, and future like peace in the palm of the hand. I could elaborate on that, whether this implies predetermination. It does not, but I won't elaborate just now. But the notion, and there it is, and it, it's, it's a strong affirmation. Uh, that this Buddha mind is out of time. It's not within time. It's not within the past, present, or future. Transcends all three, pervades all three. 
And so from the Dzogchen perspective, which is, of course, the perspective of pristine awareness, the ground, the ground of reality with which we begin, and the path which gradually unfolds over time, and the fruition, the culmination of the path, are all simultaneous. From the perspective of Rigpa. Not from our perspective, but from our perspective, from the perspective of Rigpa. All simultaneous. The fruition is in the, in the, in the ground, the fruition is in the path, the path is the ground, the path is in fruition, the fruition... All simultaneous, non-differentiated. Equality. Remember that term? Equality. Dakyam. Pure equality. So we have two ways of looking at this, taking the result, the fruition, as the path. Two that I can think of. One is emphasizing the non-inherent nature, the empty nature of time. And that if, if the future is not separate from the present by anything real, if the future is not inherently in the future, which is exactly the whole point, if it's not inherently in the future, then why not just take advantage of it now? If it were inherently there, then that would be foolish, make-believe. But if it's not inherently distant, then why not drop your anchor in that Buddha whom you will become? Why not? It's not inherently then, any more than now is inherently now, or the past is inherently in the past. So that would be one rationale. Time is not inherently existent, so therefore I'm going to drop my anchor anywhere I like, and I choose, to, I choose a happy ending. <laughs> I choose to drop my anchor there. It's my choice. I can also choose to think of myself as a loser with no prospects, and I have a basis of invitation for that. You know, that's, that's not stupid. It's, a, it's limited, but it's not idiotic, it's not crazy. I can also think I'm a pretty smart guy, well-educated, and I can drop my anchor there, or drop my anchor in the future Buddha that I will become, and take that as my vantage point, my basis. So that's one, dipping into the future and drawing it into the past. Debu Lamkir, you're taking the fruition as your path. Feasible, viable, plausible, possible. If and only if Dharmakaya is everywhere present throughout time, and if and only if time is not absolutely real. That's one way of thinking at it, within a span of time, the unflowing of time. The other one says, well, never mind that. Never mind that. Never mind the the span of time, the past, the present, the future, never mind that. Here's another way of looking at it, and that is right now. Who am I? Okay? This, this California guy. Okay, that's true. With this body, this mind. Okay, that's true. Now, as again, go deeper. Throw off that which is not you. The body's not you, right? Yeah. Mind not you? Correct. Okay, throw those off. They're not you anyway. Now ask, who are you? Substrate consciousness. That's deeper. Because this is a short story. This is a matter of decades. You know, this particular embodiment, this, this mind, and so forth, arising independence upon this brain. Really short story, right? But the substrate consciousness, well, that's not a short story. That's that grounded becoming. That's that current, that continuum of consciousness from lifetime to lifetime. 
no identifiable, no, no identifiable beginning. The only identifiable, the only identifiable end is enlightenment. Otherwise, no end. It would just continue to be self-perpetuating. So that's deeper. I'm no longer human, no longer male, no longer this personality. I'm dropping my anchor there. I'm a sentient being who has taken many lifetimes in the past, and unless I do something about it, I'm going to be taking a lot of lifetimes in the future. That's deeper. Oh, by the way, the subject consciousness, is that you? No. Then quit identifying with that which is not you as being you. And drop down to the ground, pristine awareness, break through, texture, break through, cut through the substrate consciousness to the ground. The ground is, of course, Dhammakaya, it's Rigpa, it's pristine awareness. Beyond time. The beauty of this, I love the metaphor, I'm going to give it, but the beauty of this, the access to this dimension of awareness that's beyond time is in fact the immediate present. That's the door. The door is not what it opens onto, but it is the door. So you don't go down nostalgia lane to remember the good old days when you were a Buddha. And you don't go into fantasy realm of the future like that, imagining like that off to the future. Oh, that's where I'm going to find myself as a Buddha. You go right here in this Ogchen practice, Mahamudra practice, you go right into the present. And where you are, you're starting with Tam Minapeshep, ordinary consciousness. So I'm aware of Hosa, ordinary consciousness, gotcha, gotcha. And then, Melt, deconfigure, decondition, go down to the substrate consciousness, release all grasping, all preference for bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, release all reification of the substrate consciousness, release all grasping to the substrate consciousness. Now to Rikpa. The avenue is right through the present, the door of the present. The door of the present. Here's the analogy I like. Imagine you're inside a barn. Remember this one? Imagine you're inside a barn, pitch black, and you're on a, um, what's it called? Forklift. Forklift, yeah, thank you. Forklift, forklift. But it's not, even I forgot it in English. It's just one of those things they use in industry all the time. It's just a flat platform that goes up and down. Up and down, okay. Oh, oh. Forklift. So imagine you're lying flat on your back, a nice pillow under Shavasana. <laughs> on this flat platform of the forklift, right? And somebody else is operating, so you're going to go up. And you, there you are, and you're positioned such that you're seeing the, uh, you're seeing, looking right up in the middle of the, the roof, right at the very peak of the roof, which is going like this, right like that if you're sitting right there, but you're looking right up at the, the top crack of the roof, and you, and you see right up there, way at the top, in this completely dark room, you see a very thin, band of light. There's a crack in the roof. There's a crack, and you can see it's sunlight. Sunlight shining through that crack. Right, see, oh, it's a very, very tiny crack. It's a very extremely narrow crack, but I can see sunlight coming through. And so then you, you gaze at that. Okay, well, just focus there. Don't focus on the darkness here. Don't focus on the darkness there. Just focus now. And it's right there above your eyes as you're lying on your back on this forklift. Right there. And then somebody turns on the engine, and then you start going up. And you're getting closer and closer. Of course, as you're getting closer, the, you're actually seeing more because your eyes are getting closer to that narrow band. It seems to be getting a little bit bigger. 
and you get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer until you're right next to it. And then all you see is clear blue sky. Open, clear blue sky, no borders. Long. Ying, the great expanse, the great empty expanse of Dhammadhatu, indivisible from primordial consciousness. One might think that the vastness of the sky would be somehow encapsulated in that little narrow bandwidth, but of course it's not. That's a very narrow bandwidth. That's the present moment. But if you go right into the present moment, it opens up into fourth time. Fourth time. That's when you break through all grasping all grasping to even substrate consciousness, which is in the present and which is a narrow bandwidth. So, in this regard, as we consider taking the result or the fruition as a path, it's not so much a matter of looking to the future, and the future being non-inherently the future, but rather saying, right here, who am I? California guy. Okay, keep going. What else? Release that, because that's not... That's not all. It has its truth. That's an obscuring, that's a kunzo, that's the obscuring truth. It is a truth. I'm a guy from California, it's true. But that is a truth, but it's a truth that obscures a deeper reality. And relatively speaking, the deeper reality is the substrate consciousness that carries through from lifetime to lifetime. To my mind, that's just kind of one of the most important aspects of existence in the universe, is that we're not just made of short stories. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine any more important truth just for assessing where are we in the universe and what shall we do than that one. And so, hmm. Then you drop the anchor deeper. And if you drop your anchor deeper, then that dimension, pristine awareness, it's always been present. And it's not just down in the cellar someplace. It's not like some hidden treasure. But in fact, this pristine awareness saturates substrate consciousness. Your substrate consciousness saturates your ordinary mind. Rigpa saturates your ordinary mind. It saturates craving and delusion, virtue and kindness and compassion and wisdom. It saturates waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. It saturates every moment of experience at all times. It's always there. Not identical to ordinary consciousness, but saturating it. Therefore, it's hidden in plain sight. It is here and now, right now, in this ordinary consciousness. Don't look elsewhere for pristine awareness. It's right where your ordinary consciousness is. And just rest there and don't get distracted. So in this regard, then, taking the fruition as the path is taking the Buddha that you are right now as your path and operating from that. And then the primary question is not what can I do to become enlightened, what can I stop doing that's preventing me from recognizing who I already am? via negativa, via positiva. And Mahamudra and Dzogchen are overwhelmingly via, neg via negativa. What can I stop doing? Stop doing. Chadel, stop acting. Jumamepa, stop modifying. And it's Jumamepa, stop trying. You know. I mean, it would be like me thinking, I want to be Californian, I want to be Californian. How can I become Californian? I'll just give it a rest. You're Californian already. <laughs> natural, self-emergent California. <laughs> the envy of so many other people who are not California. 
So the issue of belief, there's just there's just no getting around this. The issue of belief is enormously important in Vajrayana. If there's no belief in anything I just said, or no insight, either one, no insight nor belief, then this door is closed. That doesn't mean something terrible is going to happen to you. It just means this door is closed. Belief is imperative. Faith is imperative. But the interesting thing about this faith is consider this faith, which is really about your own nature. Consider this faith in contrast to what I'm about to say. Our sun is a giant ball of burning gas, and it's one of something like 300 billion stars in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is something like one, it is one out of something like 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and each galaxy has anywhere from 100 billion to a trillion stars. And now it seems very likely that there's more or less one planet for every star in the universe. And the universe began about 13.8 billion years ago, and after the inflationary period. Shall I go on? <laughs> Do you believe anything I just said? Or was that just kind of a fairy tale that some silly people at MIT and Cambridge and so forth just dreamed up over drinks? You know? <laughs> and if you're at all like me, you say, well, but no, that's not a fairy tale, and it wasn't over drinks. This is an enormous amount of intelligence, extremely good technology, high-powered mathematics. These people have earned our respect, by, and they've shown it over 400 years, going back to Galileo. And so, no, I don't have any evidence for anything I just said. I really don't. I couldn't prove anything that I just said. I don't even have any evidence. I'm just citing people that I have trust in. That's all. And that's what scientists themselves are doing all the time. I learned this when I was studying science, is that the vast majority of what scientists believe to be true is belief. It's not what they've checked out from themselves. Not even in physics. This is what I learned when I'm studying physics. My professor was in quantum optics, which means as soon as they start talking about relativity theory, thermodynamics, on any high level, he's basically just taking it in with faith. Not stupid faith, not blind faith. They've earned his, res he, they've earned his respect. This is how science has operated ever since Galileo. It's about 99% faith-driven. Because science is so vast, and what you can actually test for yourself is such a minute fraction, you know, that the whole, this magnificent tradition of science is operating out of faith in your peers, in your, in your professors, in your predecessors. It's, and they don't like to use the word faith. Okay, then call it confidence. But faith, confidence, tomatoes, tomatoes, you know, that there's just no way that science would be progressing now or would ever progress in the future if they suddenly stopped having confidence in each other and in previous generations and other people's research in the peer-reviewed scientific journals all over the place. Who has a chance of testing all that evidence? And so it is a faith-based tradition and one of tremendous success. So call it confidence, call it faith, call it belief. But the vast majority of the human population that has any that believes in the scientific worldview, it's it's almost entirely faith and belief. And scientists themselves operate 99% out of faith and belief. Because the whole system would grind to a halt. If you say, well, but you did it. I don't know whether it's true or not. I have to I do have to do experiment myself. Imagine you'd never have any time for any research at all, because you'd just be always checking to see whether other people did was any good or not. So the notion nowadays that's common, not everywhere present, uh, that I see by people who I think otherwise are intelligent, is silly. 
I'll quote one man. He's not a contemporary. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing a person, but this is a smart guy. His name was William Kingdom, 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 Kingdom Clifford. So he'd lived right in the, the heyday of the Victoria era, Victorian era, the height of the British Empire, never sun, sun never set on it, and so forth. He was an ink mathematician philosopher, and he expressed the idea of many scientists of his time, the late 19th century, when he wrote, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. In other words, it seems really radically and absolutely anti-belief. But of course, insufficient evidence for whom? And that is, okay, don't trust any other scientist. How do you know whether they had sufficient evidence or not? How do you know? How did you know? Did you speak with them? Did you see the evidence? Did you check? Did you check? And so if we take this to its absurd limits, he's just, he's just now buried all of science. It will never progress, because they'll never trust each other. Insufic I haven't seen your evidence. Where's your evidence? You probably picked me up. What, 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 what? You know, you become into, you're immobilized into absolutely deadening skepticism. Right? Now he's writing out of a phase where I really believe, having read Darwin and T.H. Huxley and so forth, and then Clifford, they're all writing at the same time, I have a sense, uh, they're speaking out of a sense of betrayal. This is my interpretation. Betrayal. Because it happened with Darwin, 1859, Origin of the Species, that with that and earlier research in geology and so forth, the trust of the British intellectuals that had been so deeply invested in their own church in Christianity and so forth, as here is the truth, Here's the truth that liberates. Here's the truth that saves. Here's God's own word that Newton believed in, James Clerk Maxwell believed in, most scientists until then believed in, and they took it as God's truth. And all of their scientific research was based upon, you know, the Old Testament account of creation. And then geology and Darwin, it was kind of like utterly trusting someone and then seeing you've been screwed, that they lie. They lied, they betrayed you, they misled you, they sabotaged you, they told you great big lies. And I can imagine they're being furious. You screwed us all these centuries, you've held us back. You've kept us in the darkness of religious ignorance, and I'll never forgive you for it. I really sympathize with that. I'm not anti-religion, everybody knows that. But I, I kind of really get it. I sense, as reading especially T.H. Huxley, the sense of loathing of religion. And he's saying we need to start the church scientific, and it is the church of materialism, scientific materialism. And he said we need to go for world conquest. This needs to be the global religion. We have one way to know reality, and that is science. One way. We have the one faith, the one truth, the one creed. This is the only one that is good. In other words, he's taken the dogmatism of Christianity, thrown out Christianity, kept the dogmatism, and now it's gung-ho materialism. I really understand it and I sympathize with it. And it's carrying on nowadays, you see it in book after book after book, that somehow if you, are, if you have belief, you're stupid. <coughs> it is a very foolish belief. It's a very, very foolish belief. But I understand it. And it comes up a lot nowadays. People saying, no place for faith. It's science, which is fact, versus faith. It's nonsense. It's it's utterly stupid. People putting faith only in the religious camp, only religious people are, have faith and they've done all these religious wars, they're horrible, religion is bad, science is good. Mm. 
And yet Stalin, between just two atheists, Stalin and Mao Zedong, they killed more people than any religious war, all religious wars of history. Who, how, how many, what, what religious wars killed 60 million people? They were never good enough at that. They were never good enough at killing than these two great atheists. Stalin killed 20 million of his own people. Mao Zedong killed 40 million. And they both were rampant, ravaged in destroying every vestige of religion in the Soviet Union and China. The most ferocious religious war has been waged by atheists. And they killed more people than all religious wars prior to them. And I just find it staggering that critics of religion overlook, oh, boys will be boys, I guess. I don't know what they're thinking. But here's what they're thinking. There's this Frederick Paris. He was a, I believe, psychologist. He wrote a book called Gestalt Therapy for Bottom. And he met Einstein, apparently. This is quoted in his book, Gestalt Therapy for Bottom by Frederick Paris, and he says, as Albert, Albert Einstein once said to me, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> but what is more, much more widespread than the actual stupidity is the playing stupid, turning off your ear, not listening, not seeing. That's interesting. I checked the quote to make sure it wasn't just one of those phony quotes, so there's a source. That's well said. That's well said. So much, I mean, Buddhism without belief, science should be devoid of faith, and so forth. It's human stupidity, stupidity written to an infinite level. It's kind of like kind of supernova stupidity. It's an unbelievable that intelligent people are saying these things. That we should practice Buddhism with no beliefs. I mean, you've got to be kidding. You can't even imagine what it's like to have no belief. You're just having no beliefs of Buddhism and accepting all the beliefs of materialism. This is like infinite stupidity. And you're not listening, you're not seeing that everything we're experiencing is non-physical. That's <laughs> amazing. But all the appearances we're experiencing, sight, sound, and so forth, they're all non-physical. None of these appearances are made of atoms. The information we process is not made of atoms. Our dreams are not made of atoms. Our perceptions and memories, our experience, our consciousness are not made of atoms. The world we're living in that we are actually experiencing from moment to moment is 100% non-material. It's all made out of something not made out of atoms. And the world that is purely physical is something we imagine. And the dogmatist, flaming fundamentalists and materialism say, the imaginary world is the only one that's real, and your world is an illusion. It is the ultimate trumping. It's astonishing, amazing. So sad, really, because they're not listening and they're not seeing to what reality is shouting at them, and that is, this is a world that is not made of atoms. Atoms is what it gets in your mind. So I'll end on a positive note. I love this quote, and then we're going to take a break. But this is my beloved William James. And this now is directly permanent and is entirely positive. Right. William James, he's writing in exactly the same period of T.H. Huxley and, and Clifford and so forth. Same period on the side of the Atlantic, but he traveled back and forth the Atlantic a lot. Very transcontinental kind of person. And he wrote, first to paraphrase, where preferences are powerless to modify or produce things, faith is totally inappropriate. That is, and some things is true, then whatever you believe doesn't make any difference. For example, I mean, the inverse square, of inverse square law of gravity would be a good example, but something else. Something happens at death. Something happens. 
either there's continuity of a consciousness or there isn't. It's binary. You can't have a little bit. If it's a little bit, it's yes. It's either yes or no. Yes or no. One of those is true. I think James would agree with me in saying, it's not a matter of preference. It doesn't matter what you believe. It really just doesn't matter what you believe at all. Any more than whether you believe in the laws of entropy or thermodynamics or it just doesn't matter what you believe. So keep your beliefs out of it because preferences are irrelevant here. Just see what is true. And don't complete what is true with what you think is extremely likely, which is what I hear from materialists all the time. We think it's extremely likely, but then they have no evidence. You know, Something's true. We should find out what it is before we actually get there. You know, that's what our intelligence is for. But then he writes, so, but for the class of truths that depend on personal preference, trust, or loyalty for actualization. His words are beautifully chosen. There's one class of truth. Preference is irrelevant. Shut up. Just look. But there's another class of truths that, that do depend on personal preference, trust, or loyalty for actualization, for them to come from the realm of possibility to the realm of actuality. For that class of truths, and he says, I quote, faith is not only licit, licit, the opposite of illicit is legitimate. Faith is not only licit and pertinent, but essential and indispensable. Such truths cannot become true until our faith has made them so. That's Vajrayana. You can't practice Vajrayana without accepting what he just said. There's no Vajrayana. Back to Sutrayana with you. That's it. He said it. And he wasn't even a Vajrayana practitioner. And I'll end with my favorite quote and we're finished. I really love this one. William James, again, from the, his book, posthumously published, called The Pluralistic Universe. In what manner do we espouse and hold fast to visions? Good question, huh? In what manner do we espouse, articulate, and hold fast to embrace visions? By thinking a conception might be true somewhere. It may be true even here and now. It is fit to be true, and it ought to be true. It must be true. It shall be true for me. There's the war cry for Vajrayana. The battle cry with no enemies in sight. No violence. But if you'd like to achieve shamatha, embrace that one. If you'd like to realize emptiness, that one. Like to realize Rigpa? That one. Like to practice Avalokiteshvara? That one. And he wasn't even religious. So cool. <laughs> Enjoy your dinner and see you tomorrow.